Ballet is a streaming site designed by former Pacific Northwest Ballet principal dancer Julie Tobiason. Ballet offers ballet classes for anyone at any level of training that you can do from the comfort of your home or studio. After many years performing as a professional ballerina and decades of teaching at all levels of ballet, Julie is excited to offer her training for more people like you. Classes are designed for large and small spaces and for all levels. The low monthly membership fee is less than one in-person class and is accessible 24-7 with new classes added every month. Ballybird is a great addition to your regular in-studio training as well. Take advantage of the 10-day free trial and use the discount code COD25 to get 25% off through June 30th, 2023 at Ballybird.com. Whether you are just starting your ballet journey today or you're a seasoned professional, Ballybird is the place for you. Visit Ballybird.com or click the link in the show notes. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Conversations on Dance shop is now open. Check out all of our new merch featuring exclusive designs created by graphic designer Ben Wiseman. The design comes in three color combinations and is available in t-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, tote bags, and mugs. We just got our shipment of COD gear and we just love it and we can't wait to share it with you. To shop now, visit conversationsondancepodpod.com or click the link in the show notes. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Hi, everyone. We are happy to bring you a very special episode today. As regular listeners know, we have recently moved our podcast to a new hosting company. um, And we are now part of the ACAST Creator Network. And when we moved over, we could only take 300 episodes with us. So we have uh, 50 something episodes from the very beginning of the podcast that are no longer on our feed. Uh, We decided to go back and take a look at some of these episodes that didn't transfer over and do some special re-releases so that we can preserve um, the interviews in our feed. Plus, we have found it really fun to go back and revisit these episodes. Uh, So first up today is our 2017 interview with Edward Valella, our former boss at Miami City Ballet. Edward hired uh, both of us into the company and we worked with him throughout the remainder of his tenure uh, with MCB. In 2017, we visited his home and he was generous enough to sit down with us for almost two hours uh, to talk about his career, balancing, the founding of MCB, and so much more. Uh, Part two of this episode will be coming next week. 
For our longtime listeners, we hope that you will enjoy revisiting this episode. And for our newer listeners, we wanted to mention that both our sound quality and our interview quality has really improved over time. And we hope you would agree. Um, but we still feel like it's worth preserving interviews such as this one. Uh, please subscribe to Conversations on Dance wherever you get your podcasts. Um, that way you'll be notified if um, once the new episodes come live, like the part two um, with Edward. In the coming months, we will be publishing more re-releases like this. So we really hope you enjoy. Uh, without further ado, our interview with Edward Valella from June 2017. So we are so grateful and excited to be here with uh, our former boss, Edward Valella, a man we danced under for many years. And uh, to have you in person is even a greater joy. We don't have to deal with uh, Skype. We get to see it firsthand. So <laughs> thank you for joining us. A pleasure. A pleasure. So uh, since there's such a, a wealth of material to talk about, we figured we'll just start at the beginning uh, with your SAB days. Um, when you were at SAB as a young boy, Balanchine came into your class one day and you immediately recognized him. Uh, you later participated in a photo shoot with him and photographer George Platt Lines uh, for a book. What do you remember about this first sighting and what about him was most striking to you as a young boy? Well, Balanchine had this most incredible presence. And by his presence, uh, you admired him to begin with. Uh, but my first view of him, uh, this is just in my mind, the door seemed to open prior to his entrance. <laughs> and, and then his presence arrived. And uh, it was awesome. I was 10 years old, and I'm seeing this giant walk in. And, and he stayed for about half an hour. So I, I was uh, complimented by that, that he would spend that kind of time with me as a, just a kid. Uh, but the other side of it was, this was very, very different from uh, Bayside, Long Island, where I grew up in this little studio that my sister had uh, started dancing in, and then I was forced to dance uh, because I used to get into physical trouble. <laughs> and my mother said, we're not going to trust you on the streets anymore. You've got to come to your sister's class and watch. I, I was very upset. Uh, however, I am so bored until they started to jump. And then I went in the back of the room and tried out some stuff and said, I could do this. And I started to make fun. And the teacher gave me a terrible look and said to my mother, get him out of here or put him in tights at the bar. And that was essentially how I started dancing. So I I was not a happy camper. Um, I, I used to wear my baseball uniform over my ballet stuff in case anybody saw me and they would think maybe I was uh, going out because I used to walk up backwards. It was a two-flight walk up to this place. And my, my 
idea was if anybody saw me as I was walking up backwards, it might look like I was going out. <laughs> and with my baseball uniform, that, that might be a better understanding of where I might be going. Uh, so the the difference between that tiny studio and the School of American Ballet was enormous. And needless to say, I was incredibly impressed by all of these unbelievable great, great dancers, the Maria Tallchiefs, the Andrea Glevskys, the Melissa Haydens. It, it, it was just this array. And it was so extraordinarily professional. Uh, it wasn't as um, uh, limited, shall we say, as this little school where I had started. Um, and and there you would see George Balanchine flying in the studios in and out and, and stuff like that. So for me, it was a new beginning. Uh, I was still leery of this stuff. Um, so I was I was thrilled to be at SAB, even though I kept telling everybody I didn't like this ballot stuff. <laughs> uh, but of course I I got to like it an awful lot, and I then decided when I was about eleven or twelve, now I'm going to be a dancer. <laughs> of course, that all changed when my sister stopped. And uh, my my mother said, okay, enough of this ballet stuff. No more ballet in this house. And I went, whoa, wait a minute. I sort of like this and I'm pretty good at it. And uh, They're going to offer me a job. And I had made high school in three years to get uh, into a company, the New York City Ballet, um, sooner. so I, I had to postpone because my father, once my sister was no longer a dancer, thought that was the end of it for me, and I wasn't interested to begin with. But again, by then, I had fallen in love with this stuff, uh, this physicality, but I was amazed that we could speak with our bodies. Uh, and all of that was... To music, and you could be theatrical and make comment. You could make your own comment. So that was the beginning for me. Until my father said, "Enough of this. You're going to college." Uh, I spent four years at the New York State Maritime College at Fort Schuyler in the Bronx where I achieved a, a Bachelor of Science degree in marine transportation. <laughs> and uh, the moment I finished, I had auditioned, I was accepted, and I was off. There I went. My father didn't talk to me for a year. I mean, that's really... Uh... Your career is made all the more impressed by the fact that you sort of lost four really formative years, 16 to 20, right? Yes. Where you weren't, like that's, you know, that's when most dancers are finishing their training, uh, experiencing their apprenticeships. Um, 
do you think that had you had those years, it would have affected your career differently? Or were the, was that important to who you became as a dancer uh, and a person? Uh, two approaches to, to all of that. Uh, first of all, uh, I got an education. I met a lot of great guys uh, that I still communicate with. Um, that was that side of it. The real problem for me was that I hadn't danced for years, and my physicality was baseball. I won my letters in both high school and college uh, in baseball, but I was also welterweight boxing champion. So I had to keep my physicality going. But it's a very, very different physicality. Sports is very, very different from our world, the world of classical ballet, neo-classical ballet, if, mm-hmm. if you will. Uh, so coming back from using my muscles differently for four years uh, traumatized <laughs> my muscles. <laughs> they said, wait a minute, we've been through something like this before. <laughs> what is going on? So that provided me with um, a lifetime of, of complication be, because of all of that. But the other side of it was that I had been away those four years and I had lost everything I knew about this stuff. Uh, I didn't know how to do a bar. I didn't know how to warm up. I didn't know how to stretch. I knew absolutely nothing. And that was a tremendous disadvantage. However, it turned out to be an incredible advantage because I needed to learn and relearn all over again. And it was fascinating in terms of the approach to, to the technique and, and to get back to that. But now I'm, I'm in a, an amazing company uh, that had a lot of neoclassicism, works without story. So I, I literally had to speak with my body now. Mm-hmm. But uh, that wasn't bad for me because I had, um, you know, we all have certain intelligences and there are any number of these intelligences. And for me, my intelligence was really the ability to move. So uh, as I began to, to understand all of that, uh, it was certainly advantageous in, in getting back and all of that. But uh, for the first time, I saw uh, a neoclassical ballet done. And uh, the, the point is, uh, a guy like George Balanchine rarely ever talked to you. He rarely explained ballet's... Um, uh, style, musicality, approaches. You just got there, he showed you, and you did it. And that was it. But the advantage for me was I started to learn the ballads. I I had to figure out who I was going to be in this, these neoclassical ballads. So I, I started that in my very first couple of months, and I never stopped. And that's why when I was um, having the great pleasure to work with you guys, I knew what these ballads were about. 
So it allowed me to be a, a pretty decent coach, and and I could uh, impress you guys with my little stories <laughs> about the stories within the stories. So that that was a tremendous, tremendous advantage for me. So going back to um, talking about sports and doing um, baseball and boxing, you were very well known as a dancer for your athleticism and your jump. Um, what elements do you think you were able to pull from from this kind of cross training in sports uh, while you were away at college? Uh, again, that's that's a, a, a little difficult to to decipher and ascertain, um, but. Uh, this kind of physicality, sports physicality, has many, many uh, similarities. And that's the point. There are a lot of similarities, but it's not the same. So, again, I traumatized my muscles, but I was learning how to operate. And uh, in... In the New York City Ballet, you didn't have too much time to learn these ballets. If you had two rehearsals to learn a ballet, that was a big deal. That was a huge, huge big deal. So crazy, I think. <laughs> so, um, again, it, it was this incredible new world that I was now involved in. But just the idea of learning these ballets, how do I get that stuff into my head because uh, I, I was very well aware of what Balanchine said, which was ballet is a passing art form. You pass it body to body, but critically mind to mind. And one of the oddities for me now is uh, there's a great deal of technique out there, but there isn't mindfulness, artful, mindful. Uh, we see these terrific young people doing wonderful technical approaches, but you know it's not coming from the inside. Um, a lot of people now are dancing from the outside because it's a technical error. Uh, it makes me wonder then, since you did have to think so much about um, everything technically, since you had lost those years, um, did, do you think that the, that actually helped hone your, your own mindfulness about uh, the way you approach things, that you made you smarter in a way because you had to be so conscious of every little thing you were doing for your body's sake? Nothing is left out. You have to know every part of it. This one thing about Balanchine talking as a passing art form, the first time I worked with him was uh, his choreographing Square Dance. And uh, for me, that was terrific because he spoke with his body. He rarely talked in class, but he demonstrated everything. And from a single gesture, you could figure out period, style, uh, uh, musicalities, uh, all, all of those things came from his body speaking. So it became uh, an easier circumstance for me to learn these ballets. 
because I would just understand and imitate what he was doing. And then once I was comfortable with it, I made it my own. It's not that I had that much knowledge I could make it my own, but I was freed because I knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. I, I love that you brought up that square dance was the first thing you ever worked on with balancing. That's a pretty incredible moment to have and uh, reminds me that the early years in the company that you had joined, when you joined New York City Ballet, it was such a special time. Um, and the same year that he created Square Dance, he also did Agon and Stars and Stripes and Gunod Symphony. So it's kind of the perfect year to show what a versatile master he was. It wasn't just neoclassicism. He really could do it all. And you were there to experience that. So what were those first years like? Well, uh, the first years were... Um somewhat terrifying because I I just, again, didn't quite know what the hell I was doing. Uh, but um, as, as time was going by, I was learning all kinds of things, obvious things, but I was learning internally. So I knew how to dance from inside out. Now, not from outside outside. Um, and again, this idea with 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 Palantine, um, if you watched, you basically knew, uh, and then you could work on that that kind of thing. I mean, Stars and Stripes was not a very difficult thing for me. I had just come <laughs> from the military. I knew how to salute, <laughs> so I I was fine there. Um, but this idea that you are a different person in a different period, in a different style, was so exciting to me. I could be somebody else. I could be three or four different people in a single evening. And as time went by, uh, and Balanchine began to, to choreograph for me, he made such an amazing, amazing repertoire for me. And it covered all of those areas, uh, be it neoclassicism, old 19th century stuff, new choreographers, certainly Balanchine Robbins, uh, to watch a Stravinsky come in, uh, to watch all of these in- incredible circumstances go on, uh, made me feel not only comfortable, but special. All of us at the New York City Ballet were being directed by our artistic father. And we all viewed him, and he viewed us in that way. We belonged to him, and especially the ladies. (laughs) He loved the ladies. So you said earlier that um, SAB felt like a very professional, different environment from what you came from. And of course, New York City Ballet along with that. So when did you get start to get this sense that New York City Ballet was the right place for you and that you belonged and that Balanchine was, in fact, this artistic father for you? I, I, I think I was pre-sold <laughs> um, because I was studying at the School of American Ballet way, way back. Uh, I was 10 years old. And uh, 
So uh, what he had to provide was a way to live. He had a manner and style of living, and he kind of insisted that his dancers lived in that way. He had stopped smoking a long time ago. You couldn't smoke. He drank red wine. You drank red wine. <laughs> it was it was simply that. But but uh, he was full of elegance. Uh, so there wasn't any cheesiness about anybody's approach to to any of this stuff. And and even though uh, the dancers were not fully aware, uh, they knew it was different. And now uh, I go around and I coach some of my old roles, and it's amazing that people just approach it technically. They don't know who they are on stage. I like that you said that there's no cheesiness because this is in the same breath we're talking about something like Stars and Stripes that could very if in um in less qualified hands go that direction but uh if you watch these old videos and I think Melissa Hayden even said that one time she asked him how she should dance Stars and Stripes and he said like Grand Padada you know, it's not, it didn't ever devolve into just, um, even when it was for strict entertainment's sake, it was always still, um, there's an elegance there, right? I feel like um, that's really clear when you watch those, watch the dancers of your era. It was wonderful to be guided by, by Balanchine uh, in terms of, of the field. But as a human being, he helped you grow up elegantly. Uh, you were uh, uh, the purveyor of elegance. And that's what you could bring to an audience. So again, it was another kind of specialness. And certainly that's what made us that incredibly special. So you spoke about square dance being one of your earlier um, works in the company. Is there something else that stands out from those early years for you that when you really knew that you were on a path to becoming a principal dancer? Well, uh, I I knew I could jump. Okay? <laughs> and, and, and that's a male dancer's ace in the hole. So I felt comfortable by that. And I probably had a better jump than than most of the other people. So I began to understand that that talent, the ability to jump, was a gateway <laughs> to further uh, repertoire. And the idea that I could also move very, very quickly uh, was another aspect because the Balanchine choreography is not slow. It's really about the music. And, and you have to be over that music. So there are a lot of people struggling just to keep up. But I was out there ahead. <laughs> I was flying around. So uh, before Balanchine began to create roles on you, what were some of the... Um, 
more major soloists and principal roles in the existing repertoire that you were given initially? Oh, uh, I was in the core of Western Symphony. Uh, I did uh, interplay the Robbins, the Robbins piece. Um, what else did I do? Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> It's a long time ago. I love that you did Western <laughs> Symphony Corps. I don't think I knew that. That's very cool because we did that too. I feel like all these other parts that we hear that you do are things that we haven't danced. So that's fun to have that connection with that ballet. Um, one other thing that's fun for us to talk about when we interview our guests is um, kind of some challenges of a career in ballet and, and things that people are up against. And one thing that may have been something that could have held you back is that is your height. You are a little bit shorter than many of the men in the company at that time. Um, how do you feel that you overcame that challenge and made a space for yourself? Well, I had the help of George Ballard. <laughs> uh, and and he, he cast unbelievably well and, and beautifully. Uh, and and that was a big help for me, because as the Miami City Ballet was gathering all of these these ballets, I I could have an expectation that was ongoing. There weren't that many guys at that time. It was a very small company when I first joined the New York City Ballet. There was forty four people. And the repertoire was huge because of of all of these closing ballets, um, and and it it impressed me as a, a founding artistic director. I was going to have a much smaller company, but I wanted to do these ballets, so I had to lay out all of these things and wait for things to happen, specifically to hire more dancers, um, to give people more opportunities. That's why uh, we had three to five casts of almost anything, because it was such a small company, one or two injuries would play havoc. And that's why, uh, as time was going by, I tried to get uh, as many of the dancers to know as many of the ballets or as many of the roles within a specific ballet. Uh, We had one of those most unbelievable circumstances. We were doing Western Symphony, and uh, the fourth movement woman was going after her variation off stage and turned an ankle. Now, here comes the finale. What is going to happen? I could do nothing (laughs) because I had done everything prior to this, but within the ballet, I had two other dancers who knew three roles. So they just adjusted and then started to talk people or that person or those couple of people through the ballet. Uh, And that's when I said to myself, this is a company. This is now a company that has a comfort 
And for me, watching you guys, to be uh, perfectly frank, you knowing who you were on stage gave me great comfort. I love that that's a story that stands out to you. I remember that. It was such an insane show. One of those moments that... I mean, the way it came together, it just it was unfathomable. I, I mean, I, and I remember what was so great about it was the women obviously were the ones dealing with this and they kind of figured it out amongst themselves. And then the look of bewilderment on the men's faces who had no idea what was happening. Um, <laughs> Carlos Guerra, who was doing the first movement principle, he lost his partner who took the place of the fourth movement. And then so he's just dancing with someone new and he's like, what are you doing here? But um, those kind of things, you know, like they, they have, it's a, it's a live theater. So obviously we want to talk a lot more about Miami City Ballet, but uh, we want to talk firstly about your uh, experiences having roles created on you. And what was the first ballet that uh, George Balanchine started to, to hone, use your talents for and, and make new work on you? Uh, he, he started to move me up from the core and I, I would get secondary roles like in in Stars and Stripes. Um, I, I got to dance the core of the boys and in a year I was now uh, that principal boy leading the men's regiment. So there was a lot of networking that was going on. Uh, and the, the, the crazy thing was that most of the style of Balanchine uh, would be evident in every ballet. So the, the whole thing had this continuity, where it started, where it went, and where it finished. Uh, and, and that, again, as, as an artistic director, was terrifically helpful. Um, so the the um, the joy of having a genius make work for you was extraordinary. One of the first was Prodigal Son. Uh, however, I I did not know that Balanchine did not like Prodigal Son <laughs> because he was forced to do it by Diagla. And he had a personal problem with uh, uh, the composer. Uh, and Balachin, when he first came in, said, this is it, I'm not going to stage this ballet anymore from now on, you're going to stage it. <laughs> And then I, I, I found the background to all of this. However, he came to that first rehearsal, and it was about two hours. And in the first hour, he made the variations. He redid the variations, the opening variations for me. He said to me, I, I need to change this because you are an on-layer dancer. And the two previous guys were mostly parts here. So I felt, wow, the great genius is changing things. For me, wow, isn't that, isn't that terrific? Then he started in with the pot of dirt. 
Diana Adams and myself. And that in itself, I was not the best partner in the world, but I, I could manage. And I had watched people, and I had asked ladies to help me and work with me uh, so I could have the ability to uh, dance almost anything. If you couldn't partner, you, you didn't dance very much. So he finishes that part of it, and that's it. I never saw him again. And the ballet had been out of the repertoire, so they had to get a ballet mistress, Vita Brown, who had retired. And they brought her back to stage the rest of it. So most of the time that I would go, be going to those rehearsals, they were not focused on me. They were focused on the core. They had to know. So I was kind of left out. And uh, because I had done this early approach to stuff, trying to find out uh, who I was and where I was going and what was happening, and it was easier for me because my mind was open. And I, I just listened and watched. That's all I did, listen and watch. And then after the rehearsal, I'd go and get some poor... Uh, colleague and say, help me out with this. Where does this go? And what does that happen? And um, so it, it was a whole new educational process for me. Uh, but I was ready for that. Uh, my body, not so much. But that came along after a while. Yeah, I mean, that sounds, uh, sounds daunting, to say the least, to have to create um, such a, a deep characterization of that role, the, the son, but without very many cues from Balanchine. Did he offer... Anything specific that stuck with you or informed your, your idea of the role? Oh, he, he would say, uh, he, he, would, he would say uh, kind of throwaway lines. There's a moment in the part of the where the siren gets on the neck of the, the sun and he's bent over. She's sitting there and she sits and he said, you know, it's like she's having a cigarette. <laughs> and he would, he would say uh, silly little things. At the end of the part of the, uh, the siren gives him a terrifying look and he gets into a, a fetal position. And then she comes and sits on his head and the son pulls her feet over his knees and then she rises, and then she goes down. And he said, you know, like elevator. <laughs> so he always had stuff like that. And, and then uh, as I started to watch the ballet, I, you know, he always had a style, whatever it was, a style. In, in each of those ballets, he would create a world for you. And you had to understand all of that. What was that world? I looked at the set. I looked at the table. Uh, excuse me. The fence. Then I watched the fence become a table. I watched the fence become a crucifixion 
uh, I watched the fence become a boat, and I watched the fence go back to being a fence. So uh, as I was looking at all of that, I had heard about something called Russian constructivism, but it wasn't a style that I knew very much about. Uh, so I started to think, and by God, that valley is based on Russian constructivism. So these things were starting uh, to, to show themselves. So again, I, I was just acquiring knowledge and how to operate, how to make a character, how to make a role. Not an easy thing to do if you don't have a long background to, to all of that stuff. And the director and the choreographer hadn't given you much <laughs> hands. But I didn't see him again until maybe the third performance. And he came backstage afterwards and he told me I was having difficulty getting into the pas de deux. I couldn't quite figure out how that to have a comfort in, in doing that with internal knowledge. So the, the, the point of doing a pas de deux like that, that was so un de deux like, uh, it's not your grand pas de deux. So maybe that in itself also helped me because I didn't have that kind of technical demands with a lady on point and pirouettes and lifts and, and all of those things. Uh, then he comes back and I, I, I can't get what he's trying to show me and I, I, I just can't get it. And he got exasperated with me and he said, Byzantine icons, dear Byzantine icons. Byzantine icons, what is this? And I went, I got every book I possibly could find on Byzantine icons. There was the entire port of Prodigal Son. So that in itself informed me that I had to be looking for all of those things in all of the other ballets. Again, uh, it kind of prepared me to, to be a founding artistic director. Each year, the Clive and Valerie Barnes Foundation provides recognition, encouragement, and financial support to two talented young professionals, one in dance and one in theater, thus honoring the memory of the many years of critical work and the warm personal generosity of Clive Barnes and Valerie Taylor. This year's finalists have been nominated by the Foundation's 11-member selection committee, comprised of art journalists and accomplished professionals in each field. Finalists were selected based on live performances given in New York City between January and December of 2022. Winners in each category will be announced on May 22nd at the 13th Annual Clive Barnes Award at Florence Gould Hall in New York City. Guest presenters include Pam Tanowitz and Alex Sharp. For more information or to donate, visit cvbarnesfoundation.org. That's cvbarnesfoundation.org or click the link in the show notes. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, although this role is a world away from Oberon, another great role that Balanchine created on you. It did make me think of some things and that you had this, you know, the, the virtuosity and that component that was there, but then also to have to find this characterization, to have to bring um, intellectual uh, ideas to the way you're going to inform your character. So um, what was that experience like for, with Midsummer? Did you have uh, a similar sort of uh, little tidbit of wisdom from balancing here and there that you had to kind of pick at. <laughs> again, again, it was almost like like prodigal. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, he'd he'd be you know, it was a huge ballet. The whole company was always in this studio, and then uh, we'd we'd get to an area where. Uh, I was prominent, and he'd start with me, and he'd say, "No, no, no, we'll we'll do it later. We'll do it later." He did it later for sure. <laughs> we were we were four days away from opening night when he choreographed the scherzo for me. <laughs> but that's that's the way it was. You learn it, you get on stage, and you did it. So to be to be prepared beforehand was really the way to go with all of all of this. It's a lot of mime, and he would do the same thing to me. Oh, well, you know, we'll we'll do it later. We'll do it later. We'll do it later. I said, when am I going to learn any of this? Any of this stuff? Um, so there comes the orchestra dress two days before the performance. <laughs> And, and again, there, there there were vacant areas for me because they hadn't been choreographed. So suddenly, uh, Stanley Williams, great, great teacher and a pal of mine, he said to me, Lincoln Kirstein just came to me and said, Balanchine thinks you're going to ruin the ballet. Oh my God! is going to ruin the ballet. <laughs> so, so Stanley said, "Okay, let's let's go up into the studio." And I said, "Okay." So we go up, and he says, "Show me, show me what he showed you." I said, "Well, you know, he would say, you know, call Puck." So I I, I call Puck. He said, "No, no, no. <laughs> that's not how you mime. You don't mime quickly because the audience." doesn't get it you have to slow it down and have uh, an accent so the audience can focus on it 
you can't have that gesture moving because they don't get it. So I went, oh my God, I said, Stanley, this is incredible. So I was ready <laughs> to do a gesture and stop it in midair. Uh, and I, I became somebody able to mime. The New York City Ballet never had mime. Just never happened. And there I was for the first time, miming. So anyway, the, the opening arrives. Uh, I do my performance. I had a really, really nice, nice performance. And the next day, I'm hanging on a cold steam pipe backstage at City Center. And in walks Balanchine with his trench coat and paper under his arm. And I'm trying to warm up. And he walks right by me, keeps going, stops, turns around, comes to me and says, you know, dear, you danced excellent last night. Excellent. And put his arm around me. Well, I lived off that. <laughs> so it didn't ruin the ballet after all. Huh? <laughs> I did not. I did I think it's so interesting. Like you said, you and the New York City Ballet wouldn't do any miming. This was the Midsummer Night's Dream was so different from anything that you guys had done really up to that point. And being a full length production, what was that like? Could you compare and contrast for us a little bit the experience in the studio of the creation process of that versus a neoclassical like 20, 30 minute piece that you would normally dance? Well, again, Balanchine didn't talk much, but boy, did he choreograph. And uh, in the first act, where he's working with the, with the principal people, and he tells his story in a matter of seconds, I was absolutely stunned at what he could do economically. He did not waste a gesture. I love um, Midsummer. It is a very complicated storyline, and it's seemingly at odds with the sort of famous. Um, I don't know if you said this directly, but th there are no mother-in-laws in ballet <laughs> that you shouldn't. You know, basically, if there's a character you can't describe, if if the audience can't absorb what's happening, it shouldn't be there. But then he takes this story that could be so complicated and tells it so succinctly and perfectly. Uh, Just... it's, it's called genius. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't hard for him. And the reason it wasn't hard for him was he knew the score inside out. You'd walk past his room in uh, now the, well, we still refer to it as the State Theater. <laughs> you would... You would walk past his his room and you would hear him a note at a time taking scores apart. He once told me he had 20 fully studied scores in his head at any time. And he would literally, if the time was right, the monies were available, the the personnel was right, he'd do a ballet. And he'd just bring the score in with him. And he'd be looking at the score and then clap his hands. We'd get together and he'd knock a huge chunk of choreography off simply because he was always prepared. 
always. So there are many stories about how quickly he works. So is, was that your experience also in a, in a Midsummer Night's Dream that it was very quick? And even to, like you said, to simplify this story and make it very clear to the audience, it was still a very quick process? Yes. Everything about him was was quick. And again, I think uh, with that knowledge that, that he was studying scores on an ongoing basis, you could understand why he could work so quickly. And he was essentially choreographing while he was taking the score apart. Mm-hmm. So he knew exactly where he wanted to do what he wanted to do. So uh, we're just getting the tip of the iceberg of everything that Balanchine made on you. But um, since we're talking about him working so quickly and efficiently, I wanted to bring up another genius that you worked with who is rather different, and that is Jerry Robbins. And um, if you could tell us a little bit, what was that like to go back and forth between these two men who worked so differently? And what what, what made Jerry so different from Balanchine? Well, uh, Jerry would choreograph in a way that he was never fully Sure. For instance, in Dances at a Gathering, we had version A, B, C, and D. (laughs) (laughs) If you can imagine learning four different approaches to the same music, uh, it was maddening. It drove us all crazy. But that was Jerry. Uh, This is how he worked. He was a genius. He did incredible work. And you you just dealt with it. So having come from uh, a Balanchine rehearsal into Robbins, it slowed down. And it continually changed on an ongoing basis. Now, Balanchine would be choreographing specifically to your abilities. Jerry was choreographing to his thoughts, his ideas, all of his. So you had to maneuver and manipulate yourself to fully understand the way he was moving and the way he was talking. And he talked an awful lot. But he was a director, and he directed on Broadway. And so no matter what it was he was doing for you, he was directing you. And uh, he was the first person I really ever worked with. Um, When I had joined the New York City Ballet, I was there a couple of weeks, and suddenly I hear that Jerry wants me to learn Afternoon of a Fawn. I went, Afternoon of a Fawn? Why me? I, I I had no idea. I'd just gotten out of a military college, hadn't danced for four years, and he wants me to, I, I don't get it. I don't, uh, and it was years before Jerry uh, came to me and said, you know, you were part of the original um, inspiration for Afternoon of a Fawn. I said, what, what? He said, yeah. He said, you know, both of us were in a, a class at SAB together. And he said, I was leaning against the bar and I suddenly began to stretch. And that became an image for him. Uh, I, I was like, my God, 
I was an inspiration for this masterwork. And that's why he wanted to see me immediately. But I wasn't quite prepared for that. Certainly not in the partnering area. I didn't learn partnering at the Maritime College. They, <laughs> they did not have that as an elective. <laughs> Someone who you very famously partnered, it's one of the most beloved partnerships, I think, in New York City Valley history, is um, Patricia McBride. And we've already m- talked about dances, and that was with Patricia McBride. And another ballet that Balanchine created on you um, was Tarantella which, again, helped to showcase your um, virtuosity and the the stamina that you two had together. But what do you think made you guys such a a great pairing? Why did it work so well? Uh, Well, I don't know if you know Patricia McBride at all. We had her on the show. She was so wonderful. <laughs> we want both of you together. That's what we really want. She talked about you too. She said we asked her one of these a very similar question about your partnering, and she just lit up. It was so cute. Well, uh, we had a good time. First of all, we were comfortable with each other, and I I loved her. I, she was she was an angel, uh, just an absolute angel. Uh I, I danced with her probably 17, 18 years or something like that. And we never had a crossword, ever. So I, I, I have nothing but the greatest admiration for her. And uh, we, I, I used to take her on a lot of my gigs and stuff. And, and we'd go up and symphony date or something. And, and she'd be there scratching the floor a little bit doing tundus and this and that and the other and and I would come and I would start an hour and a half two hour warm up because that's how long it took me to warm up for her maybe 15-20 minutes you know, she'd want to push it just keep it keep it comfortable One of the things that she mentioned to us when we spoke with her was the gigs that you would go on. And she said that that was one of the things that made her start to feel so comfortable performing. She said it was something that she felt so lucky to do with you is to go on all these gigs. And she started to feel really comfortable on stage, comfortable with you. And she felt like that was kind of a big turning point for her is is what she said. Uh, I I had the great pleasure of, uh, you, you know, she is a Kennedy Center honoree. And they asked me to make the toast to her. They give the actual awards uh, in in the State Department. And it's a big, huge, gorgeous ballroom. And I I started to talk, and really, what I was talking about uh, was Patty. I'd I'd like to explain to you what it was like for me to dance with you. And then I went on and on about her, her generosity. Her, I, she could do anything. She was really the glue in the New York City Valley, because you could put her anywhere, and and she did just brilliant, incredible work. Uh, of course, another really important work that you guys made together uh, that was centered on your partnership would be Ruby's. And um, of course, there's the famous story of Balanchine going into Van Cleef and Arpels and being inspired by that, um, as that being his departure point for Jules. 
But when did you and the company start to hear that this idea was formulating? And at what point did you know uh, what role you'd be taking in it? Uh, at the last minute. I mean, <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> the New York City Ballet uh, was not full of information for the dancers. <laughs> you just had to wait for it to come at you. Um, but the the oddity uh, with Jules was uh, people were a little leery of it because it had never happened before. Three different ballets three different um, uh, composers, but also uh, he was, uh, he, by he, embarrassing, he was educating his audience. So he would start with, uh, obviously, uh, Emeralds, and, and that was French Romanticism. Then there was Ruby's, American Neoclassicism. And obviously, the Tchaikovsky, the Diamonds, Grand Imperial Russian manner and style. And again, he would say very, very little. Patty and I were now going to do the part of the and Rubies. He told me I was the jazz man, and she was the jazz lady. <laughs> so that was it. Uh-huh. That's all. We were told, and uh, as as time is going by, I'm I'm saying, what else is going on in here? Because I knew that Balanchine would always have three or four points of departure, at least three or four points of departure. And I started to listen to the inside of these pieces, and going back to Emeralds, uh, the first thing I I heard beyond what I had originally picked up was an aquatic kind of thought and idea. So I I think he was mixing emeralds with the emeralds of water. So he, he did all of these things and nobody was aware of it. But I began to be aware of it. And I'm, I'm looking for something inside rubies. And I kept listening, kept listening, and I'm hearing clop, clop, clop. I said, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It sounds like horses. Well, when the ballet opens and, and you have this big necklace of, of rubies, there's a demi-soloist woman or a soloist woman uh, separate from uh, the the necklace or whatever, and she suddenly comes barreling down. And I said to myself, oh, my God, it's a horse. It's a filly. It's a filly. And then there's this big pot of sank with the big girl and the four guys. The four guys were grooming the filly. So I said to myself, hey, jockey, <laughs> I'm the jockey, and Patty was the filly. Uh, it, it, it was uh, just amazing, this, this little uh, 
charade that I was dealing with all the time, trying to find out what this stuff fully was about. I remember you talking to us also when we danced that ballet about the uh, moment where the principal man, so your um, spot would be going around the stage and the four core men would be kind of chasing after him. And I think there's a really specific story behind that as well, right? Well, I, you know, that's that's basically how I grew up in Queens. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, we chased each other. That's what we did. Um, uh, and you say, well, how did Balanchine even think of something like that? He knew us inside and out. And I'm sure he just said, I, I was that kind of guy anyway. <laughs> I mean, I, I wasn't your typical ballet kind of guy. So um, on to another work that Balanchine created for you, this time with Allegra Kent. Um, wanted to talk a little bit about Bugaku. And I think at this point, we're already getting a sense of how varied um, Balanchine was as a choreographer and how he saw you. I mean, Oberon isn't Rubies, isn't Tarantella. And none of those certainly are Bugaku. So um, can you tell us a little bit about what the idea behind this ballet is and uh, what your experience was like uh, creating it? Well, uh, Bugaku is, is a, a, a Japanese ancient, uh, ancient ritual, if you will. Uh, it's a marriage ceremony. And uh, it's almost... Um, beyond risque. <laughs> so those those were the obvious things. But how to make that character, that was, for me, very complicated. What was he doing? What was he providing us with? Where is he going with, with all of this stuff? And um, just recently about... A month and a half ago, I was asked by the... I, I work a bit now with the uh, the Balanchine Foundation, which is different from the Trust. And uh, so they asked me if I would do Bugaku. I said, oh, I'd love to do it. I just <laughs> love that ballet. And uh, so anyway, I, I go and I'm watching them. And and I'm seeing technique and nothing else. And in a ballet like that, you have to clearly identify yourself uh, with a, with a Japanese understanding. Uh, so I I would go back and and think about anything Japanese that I had any awareness of the sense of a samurai, the delicacy of the women, the quickness, uh, lightness of the feet for the women and the guys and all of these um, other areas that you could tap tap into. So I watched these people and nothing was going on. It, it was just vacant gesture. Uh, so uh, when... When the gentleman is uh, is walking on with his th uh, four other guys, um, he is making this entrance, and I stopped him. Maybe he 
made two steps or something. And I, I, I stopped him and I said, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Okay. Uh, what's going on in your mind right now? Because his face was blank. So then I, I started to talk to him about the weight of the character. There's, there's a weight to, to this. It's, it's kind of this samurai. And there's a tilt to the neck. And there's a sense within the eyes. Uh, and that already begins to draw you in to this Japanese world. So if, if you're going to make your entrance and there's nothing there, that's a big hill to climb. Uh, so it was terrific to be able to get him already. The first thing we were doing together to get him Japanese-oriented. So it's, a, it, it's an important thing, and I'm attempting a book now, and I want to talk about that about stepping on stage. What happens? Something happens. You don't just step on stage and look around. You have to inform an audience. You, you have to give them terror. You have to give them joy. You have to get, you are the sounding board. You have to provide for that audience to feel comfortable with you in relation to the music, the style, the period, all of those. I love hearing you talk at length about this because I think um, there might be some misunderstanding in particular about the Balanchine um, saying that so many people use, uh, don't think, just do. And it, it isn't meant to be mindless, obviously. You have to have the awareness. So, so how do you... Um, what do you think that really meant when he would say that? And and uh... shut up, <laughs> because you know he's choreographing away, and some of these dancers would be yapping away like crazy. And you know, forgive me, Violet, whom I adored and loved. Violet uh, was a raconteur. I mean, she could speak gorgeously, and so. Her mind was ahead of all of us, not ahead of Balanchine. But he didn't want to hear it. He didn't have to hear it. He knew all of this stuff. So, so that's that's really one of the things uh, about the misconceptions that come from the presence of of, of Balanchine. You know, you, you he just knew it all, and he put it upon you, and. It was like he was the master tailor. And he would make a suit for you that you almost couldn't feel on you. That's how easily you could move with it. Elegant, fully informed, very comfortable. He was a basic, simple man who happened to be a genius. So um, another ballet that you worked with Balanchine on um, that stemmed from the 1972, the legendary 1972 Stravinsky Festival, um, you did the Potida with Sarah Leland of Symphony in Three Movements. And by all accounts, that was a really hectic time getting that festival off the ground. 
people were rehearsing in hallways and uh, having danced the ballet under your direction, Rebecca and I both, for many years, um, we know how hard it is to count, how hard it is to learn the steps. So getting it out there for that premiere, how confident were you guys in the counts and the steps? I mean, you must have had very little preparation time. Little or none. <laughs> and, and that score is, as you know, daunting. Um, and, and for me, Stravinsky was always, always a challenge. Balanchine choreographing it upon us would say one or two things. And one of the things he said was Balinese. Mm-hmm. And that began to give me all kinds of other points of departure. Certainly the style that he provided, uh, some of the gestures looked like Balinese dancing. So at least I had a point of departure. Uh, I, I could get inside this thing. Um, in, in terms of the rest of it, my biggest problem was the music itself. There's a moment when the guys are downstage left and they're, they're doing some kind of backward uh, gesture. And he said, you know, it's like the back bay shuffle. I said, what? Back bay shuffle, you know? And, and he'd show you this step. It's a jazz step. And he did that all the time. His work is full of jazz, full of jazz uh, uh, comment on an ongoing basis. But it makes sense. I mean, if, if you can think of these old uh, uh, 19th century pieces, the grand old things, um, the, the composers themselves... Uh, took folk dance. Well, jazz is a folk dance. And Balanchine could do jazz like nobody else. He was a great dancer. Not in terms of big pyrotechnical kinds of stuff, but moving. Nobody moved like him to music. He just showed you a whole other world. So another um, large element of your dancing career was you helping to bring ballet into the homes of millions of Americans uh, through your performances on television, on programs such as The Ed Sullivan Show. Um, How did these appearances come about, and why do you think they were so important for you to do? Uh, Well, uh, uh, first of all, those those things didn't kind of just come about <laughs> my my agent would, would call me and say oh we we just got a a call for you to do a Sullivan show or Carol Burnett uh, you know God knows what so that's that's how basically those those things happen and those those producers uh, you know that that again was a very very different era when Ed Sullivan would have classical ballet dances on on his show, uh, you didn't expect that from from these places. Um, now, the negative about doing television is, in those days, they were cement stages. Oh boy! Yeah. And what they did was they put these tiles over them, 
and then they waxed them. So they would hit the the lights would hit the wax and it would reflect. So you couldn't even walk across those damp things. But if you jumped and landed, I have nine broken toes. (laughs) Guess where that came from? You know, it's it's uh, it was a terrible time, and and the reason was the cameras were huge, so you you couldn't have a soft stage. You needed cement to support the cameras. And if you did a Bell Telephone Hour or or something like that, I remember uh, arriving in Brooklyn at the studio at 8 in the morning, and I started my bar on cement in my studio. <laughs> so uh, there were negatives and positives. The positives, of course was that there was an uh, audience out there uh, that may not have known anything about ballet, but the American community really didn't, at that time, know too much, nor do they now. Ballet <laughs> uh, is a mystery, uh, uh, and we speak, you know, we have our own vocabularies and 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 all of that, but it's the last of the major art forms uh, to arrive. You know, there was certainly symphony, there was opera, and finally ballet, the last to evolve. Uh, So especially in this country, um, it was nowhere as familiar as, say, Europe. So a lot of education needed to go on. And I began to sense and feel that uh, maybe I was providing a service in a, in a crazy way to raise the visibility of this stuff. And I would quite often have questions. You know, I, I would finish a performance and they would ask uh, whoever wanted to stay to ask questions. And I would. So again, I, I got the sense that maybe I was being helpful. Uh, at a time when very few people had seen American dance. So I loved that idea, and I loved speaking about the art form because I was learning so much about the inside of this stuff that I could make it that much more interesting to people. It it wasn't all of the obvious stuff. So uh, for me, it... It never stopped. I just loved speaking about it. And I continue to do it. I mean, I, 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 I don't uh, do as much as I used to do, but you know, I'll, I'll do maybe 10 different little... Um, th- this one place, the University of Arizona, uh, I am going back, I think it's the seventh time in a row. Wow. So, the, you know, and... and uh, at at this stage of the game, I feel that much better about it because I know so much more now, and and I can explain these things uh, in a way that most people don't even think about. But again, my disadvantage became my advantage that I hadn't danced those four years because I started to study. 
Conversations on Dance is a part of the Acast Creator Network. For more information, visit conversationsondancepodpod.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.